0: anticipating our daughters uh, leaving for the mission field. We've been sort of keenly watching a story about a uh, mission team. You might have seen the article about mission team in Haiti, 17 individuals uh, who'd been down there working, doing in a lot of ways similar work to what my girls will be doing next month, uh, who were taken hostage. And this gang in Haiti wanted $17 million for the return of these 17 missionaries. And it's a ministry-based, not not too far from here, actually. So we've watched that with great interest. Uh, Five of the hostages had been released. They got ill, and apparently the hostage holders did not want to uh, be responsible for them being sick and dying on their watch, and so they released them, but that left 12 behind, and uh, not not too long ago uh, we all got word where the news came out that the 12 remaining hostages had been freed after two months of captivity. This is a story that certainly we'd been praying for and a story that we're thankful to hear, but the story gets even more interesting when you get into the details because they were not actually freed they escaped twelve hostages twelve hostages who as a group spent their time in captivity singing and praying and counseling their captors that they needed to repent after Weeks, months really of, of prayer together, they decided collectively that they needed to try to make an escape. They prayed to God for signs. They'd actually had two other times prior to their escape, two other times when they were planning to make an escape, but they'd prayed for God to give them signs if the time wasn't right. They got those signs, they didn't say what they were. But they got those signs, and they put off the whole escape. And then the third time, they go to, to make their escape, somehow get the door open, get the, the blockade beyond that, get past that, slip past the guards who were very nearby, make their way out into the jungle. They trekked, we think, about 10 miles by moonlight, They chose uh, a landmark to make sure they didn't get turned around, and they just kept trekking towards that landmark until finally they came upon somebody who had a phone, and they were able to call for help. They were evacuated from Haiti in time to be back here for the holidays. And it's kind of an amazing story. I find it remarkable because of their demonstration of faith what they did throughout this ordeal. And the fact the fact that, I don't know about you, I'm not a very patient person, so the fact that you reach this point where you're ready to escape, and then you back off of it because you feel like God said the time wasn't right, and have such faith that they just stay. I think it's a great illustration of the fact that sometimes following God requires supernatural faith and courage. See, as, as we've been talking about, fear and selfishness come rather naturally to us. They are part of our fallen nature. We, we don't have to do much to conjure up our fear or our selfishness. It, it just comes to us. But faith and courage require decision. It's more than just an alternative way to look at the situation. Faith and courage require that we rise above our nature. In the call to believe, humanity is experiencing something of a divine intervention. Jesus himself says, for anyone to come after me, anyone to come to me, the Father has to send them. There's that divine intervention. Yesterday, we celebrated a divine intervention, God entering into the world, making the step, the first step. We pray this new year for another divine intervention. We pray for God to be involved, to, to be a part, to be leading, guiding. We pray that he would grow our faith and our obedience, and our courage. Our story today is a story like that. Now, you've just had a review of uh, the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. We've covered the story of Zerubbabel. We've covered the story of Ezra. And now we come to the story of Nehemiah, which you got a preview of. This is a story of divine intervention. Nehemiah is introduced to us as a cupbearer to the king, which doesn't really sound like much. Sounds like kind of a servant job. But it was actually a very important job. The cupbearer to the king, first of all, has an audience with the king almost every day, which is significant. You remember when we looked at the story of Esther. She hadn't been called before the king in two months and was afraid to make an appearance before him without having been called. This is sort of the other end of the spectrum. This guy is in the king's presence daily. But also the responsibility of the cupbearer is immense because one of the best ways to knock off a king in those days was to poison them. And so the cupbearer had the responsibility of making sure that everything that the king drank was safe to drink. It was a position of immense trust and that sort of shows up in the narrative. The fact that, that uh, Nehemiah can have this conversation with the king that's relatively casual indicates that there is this relationship of immense trust and that he is, uh, in a sense, not just a servant but a trusted advisor. And He's got an idea He hears that things are not progressing much back in Jerusalem, that the walls of the city are still in ruins, that the glory of the city has not been restored. These stories must have been coming back uh, to Babylon on a regular basis. But he hears these stories, and he has an idea. Now, everyone had to be discouraged by this because everyone is waiting on God to fulfill his promise, and his promise is, that the city of Jerusalem is going to be restored to its former glory. In fact, it's going to be more glorious than it was before, that this messianic kingdom is going to arise. And everybody kind of thinks, okay, at the end of our 70 years of exile, this is what the prophet said, we're going to go back, the story's, the city's going to be restored, all of these things are going to happen, and the messianic king is going to show up, and it's going to be the greatest kingdom ever. And very little of that, very little of that has taken place. There's a new temple, but the city is still kind of a mess. There's no Messiah in sight. None of these things have happened. But where everyone else is discouraged, Nehemiah has plans. Now, he must have thought long and hard about this, and if the narrative is any indication to us, he must have spent a lot of time praying because from the time he gets news about Jerusalem to the time that he actually approaches the king is about four months. So this is four months of consideration and prayer. And then when he has the opportunity, when the king asks him what's on his mind, basically, the text says that he prays again. We've all had prayers like that, right, in that moment. Here we go, God. Stay with me. He prays again in that moment, and he tells the king what he wants. And the king says, well, how long would it take? Nehemiah gives him an answer. He doesn't tell us what the answer was. He gives him an answer, and the king says, okay, you can go. Then Nehemiah says, "Uh, we're going to need some wood. Can we have some wood? The king says, okay, you can have some wood. Gives him letters to take with him. He goes out with this big plan to rebuild the gates and the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And once again, a king of Persia provides him with the authority to do so and the resources to do so. The interesting thing about this narrative of Nehemiah is we never really get any clear indication that his plan is the best plan or even necessarily a very good plan. In some ways, it seems to contradict what the prophets are saying about this new city that will be a city without walls. He's got his idea, and it, it doesn't quite fit that vision, but he's, he's passionate about it. Historically speaking, rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem will not bring about the restoration of the kingdom. It will not restore the Davidic line. It will not usher in a new messianic king. There will still be a succession of occupying powers over Jerusalem. In some ways, we might even wonder what exactly Nehemiah accomplished with all of this. What we do know is that God answers his prayers. God responds to this plan imperfect though it may be, and made Nehemiah a witness to his power. What Nehemiah possessed was a deep passion and a deep faith. He has a passion to see the city restored, to see the prophecies fulfilled, and he calls on God, acknowledging The People's Blame. It's kind of an interesting... The book gives us several of Nehemiah's prayers and they're quite fascinating to read. I would encourage you to read them in their entirety. But he calls on God and in his prayer, he basically says, we know that we blew it. We know that all of this is our fault. But, and he says... Let me remind you of the promises that you've made. In spite of all of this, you promised, and he goes to list all of these promises that God has made. Now, this is not a a, a manipulation so much as it is Nehemiah expressing his absolute faith. It's the ability that he has to say, Look, we know we were in the wrong, you made these promises. These things are not quite coming to fruition, but I believe they will because you said so. You said so. So Nehemiah has this faith that God's promises are still going to be fulfilled and he passionately seeks that. He says essentially to God, I know this is what you are going to do. I want to play a part in what you're going to do. That's not a bad approach It's a strategy because often, often when we're pursuing mission, we see the broad strokes of what it is that God wants us to do, but we don't have the fine details. And filling those in is a very imperfect process. In fact, the book of Nehemiah is encouraging because it's so familiar. There's no voice of God here. There's no angel that shows up and says, here's what you need to do next. There's no oracle. There's no prophecy. There's nothing. And all those times when we're trying to make plans for God's kingdom, we think, wouldn't it be nice if God would just send a memo? And he doesn't. It's like that. That's why this story feels so familiar. We know that the plans that we make are going to be imperfect because they're human plans. We know that we're going to execute them imperfectly because we're human. And yet God is faithful because Nehemiah is faithful. Because he believes, because he is passionate, he is faithful, and he is prayerful. So, what does it mean for us to? What does it mean for us to be accomplished in this mission? Be people who imperfectly create in a kingdom direction who rely on supernatural faith and courage what will it take to get where we are going and how will we know when we've got there nehemiah chapter 4 beginning of the chapter when sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall he became angry and was greatly incensed he ridiculed the jews And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down down if there are uh, walls of stone. What does that tell us? I think probably what it tells us uh, is that slander is the most common form of persecution. In the common vernacular, the people around Jerusalem are talking trash. That's what they're doing. They're talking trash about the remnant as they go to rebuild the walls of the city. And the interesting thing is, even though this trash talk is based in insults and lies and extremely biased reports. The whole narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah is really driven by this fear of opposition, which ultimately turns out to be almost entirely talk. Big talk, trash talk, but talk. It's a reminder that when we pursue plans for the kingdom, You know, a lot of times, uh, what we are fearing, what we have anxiety about, what we worry about is what people are going to say, what people are going to think about the plans that we make, about the plans that we pursue, but it's still mostly talk. So here's how Nehemiah answers it. He prays. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So Here's, here's the response in a nutshell. They prayed that God would vindicate them against their critics, and they kept working. That's it. They kept working. Now, at this point, they reach a very mission-specific crisis. Up until now, the walls are rebuilt with what is laying there, rebuilt from the ruins They reach half of their height, and now they pretty much just have rubble left. There's not a lot of useful building material left anymore. So now the work becomes more difficult. And on top of that, their enemies are threatening violence against them. And so now everybody goes on double duty. Now half the people are standing guard while the other half are working, and the ones who are working have to keep a spear by their side. They're all anticipating that something might happen. Somebody, somebody might come and actually follow through on their verbal threats. Now, this impacts the working class in particular. The construction cost was apparently furnished by the king of Persia. But these people are all dedicating many weeks of service without compensation. And they still have to put food on their tables. They still have to pay taxes to the king. And so the working class are affected most dramatically. And so a conflict arises that's undermining the unity of the people. In Nehemiah chapter 5, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because Our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So here's the reminder that conflict will often arise from within. The basic problem here is that uh, everybody's working on the wall and not working on their personal livelihoods. The taxes are still high. The cost of living is still high. And it's become bad enough that some of these some of these working class families have had to essentially sell their children into indentured servitude. Now you'll remember from sermons sermon several weeks ago that slavery in this culture is not quite the same as slavery in, uh, as we've experienced it here in this culture, but it's still a pretty terrible deal. And, and really this situation for Nehemiah adds a lot of insult to injury because when the people were originally conquered and taken off into exile, many of them were sold into slavery. And when the people got to Babylon, they had to work very hard to make the money to buy their relatives back out of slavery. Now, they have this opportunity to return to Jerusalem, and because of the situation that's been created, they find themselves essentially sending their children back into this indentured servitude. Now, they have the opportunity to purchase them back, they can buy them back out of this debt. But it's still a miserable situation. It is a conflict that's created from within. And the interesting thing about it is there's already law against this. So the solution that Nehemiah has is to quote the law back to them. See, there are laws in, in Mosaic. Mosaic law It, it prohibits usury. Right? So you can't charge a tax that's too high. And when your brother, when another member of Israel has a need, you are not allowed to profit from that need. So what they're doing is they're continuing to charge interest to their fellow Israelites on these loans, even though these loans are taken out because of an immense need that their fellow Israelites have. The law already prohibits this. So Nehemiah quotes the law to them. and They say, oops, you're right. We'll fix it. We'll make it right. He makes this appeal to the law, and it reminds us that God's word must always be the arbiter of conflicts between God's people. It's the only thing that has any hope of keeping us unified is our adherence to God's Word. This message is met with repentance, it restores the peace, and the people get back to work. Then, chapter 6. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah! Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. Well, this reminds us that conflict will definitely arise from without. This is, uh, this is the fifth time that a message has been sent to him. In other words, basically what's been happening is they're just bothering him constantly, trying to get him to come to meetings, trying to get him to to engage in negotiations, to have some talks, have some discussion. Come stop your work and come talk with us about it. And he keeps refusing. And so finally they come to him and they say, well, we heard some stuff. We heard some stuff. You know, the best gossip is always hearsay. Because it didn't come from me. But I heard it. So therefore... You better pay attention. Not only did I hear it, but I'm prepared. I'm prepared to repeat it to the king. Well, of course, the story is cut from whole cloth. It's it's made up from nothing. And Nehemiah says as much. He says, This is all in your head. You have created this completely. He refuses the distraction and he turns to prayer. Now the text tells us that the enemies had contrived this plan because they hoped that it would weaken the people's resolve. So Nehemiah prays that God will strengthen him and they keep working. It reads, "Sorry, verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of El- Elul in 52 days, When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. This is really the important point we need to take away from Nehemiah. A God-sized task is the ultimate testimony and the ultimate judgment. Yes, there will be opposition. Yes, there will be problems. We will have trouble and tribulation. There will be an agenda on the part of our enemies. The, the world will not be silent. Now, most of what they say will be empty threats. The vast majority of it will be empty threats. But our responsibility is to pray and to keep working. If the task that we set before ourselves, if the task that we choose from the vast array that is God's mission on this earth, if the task is one that is beyond us, if it is a God-sized task, if it is something that can only be completed by his power, that is the ultimate testimony that he has been with us. This is what shuts down Nehemiah's enemies. They hope to discourage him. They hope to discourage the people. They find themselves discouraged. And why? Because the task before the Israelites was so immense, there is no way they could have possibly accomplished it without the help of their God. That is the ultimate testimony, that is the ultimate vindication of the mission. it takes faith and courage and it is the faith and courage with which they complete the task that is the story we don't even know that the task itself was all that important but we know that their faith and courage was they turn to prayer at every point at every point of decision at every point of challenge at every threat that arises the story about these uh, Haitian missionaries when they're out there in the nighttime traveling by moonlight trying to make their way through the jungle and they would reach a point and they wouldn't be sure how to proceed where to go and they would stop and pray together asking God where do we go from here what a remarkable testimony turn to the law, they turn to the prophets for guidance, for direction, for the hope of the promises that have been offered. And Here's here's what I'd love for us to take away from Nehemiah today. Real ministry takes place at the intersection of faithful prayer and sacrificial service. This is where it all happens if we are not praying, if we're not seeking God's blessing, his guidance, his direction, his hope, we've kind of missed the whole point, haven't we? Why would we want to do anything without the most powerful asset that we have, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father? Why would we not address everything that we do through prayer? And yet also, prayer by itself is like faith without works. It's the approach to God without the assumption that God will do anything. And so it is not one or the other. It is both. Prayer and and service go hand in hand. The willingness to follow God wherever He leads, wherever this goes, and the the will to seek him in all of it to ask him to be a part of it to seek to seek his blessing to seek that direction to seek that relationship with him that is the point of the entire endeavor it is both of these things together we need faith and courage to do both of these things faith and courage to commit ourselves to prayer, faith and courage to commit ourselves to sacrificial service, to rely on God completely and to act in complete obedience. As we face this new year, our prayer must be for that kind of faith and that kind of courage. This congregation, this year, will have served this community for 135 years. Here's to another 100. With faith and courage, God can do it through us.